The following podcast is sponsor content from Umqua Bank. As the founder CEO, every six months, if you haven't gotten fired, you've gotten a promotion. You really have to know the person to be in business with the person. It was a lot of borrowing from Peter to pay Paul and then, you know, asking Paul to hold his check on Monday. Welcome to Open Account, where we get honest about making, losing, and living with money. I'm Sujin Park. I was excited when Umqua Bank approached me. They're a community bank, and they wanted to have a different conversation about our relationship to money. They believe that talking about money is essential to having a healthier relationship with it and ultimately with one another. Together, we've created this podcast to focus not on generic financial tips or economic advice, but on the realities of life and money and how honest conversations about both can help us reach our potential. So this episode is about striking out on your own, whether you want to work as a freelance artist or a writer or start your own business. What we found to be the most interesting part about this conversation isn't necessarily how to start a small business. There's another type of investment, the emotional one, that's harder to quantify how it's going to make you feel to be able to tell your own story, to have your own time, to create something of your own. Because when you're starting out on your own, you don't know how it's going to turn out. You don't know what the financial investment and then the return is going to be. The only thing that you can really count on is the emotional investment and how that's going to pay off. I think a lot of this stuff about self-doubt and what your risk tolerance is and who you are as a person and how that informs the financial decisions you make, that doesn't really get talked about as much. Sure, we can talk about budgets and how to come up with a financial plan and that sort of thing. Listen, you can Google that and get all the information. I think a lot of us have a desire to be our own bosses, right, to have your own thing, you know, your own bakery or skate shop or whatever it is that you have this inner passion for. And our instincts about this emotional investment were immediately confirmed as we started to reach out to our guests, who all said that they wish they had this information when they were starting out. So today, we're going to bring you a toolbox of information from five amazing small businesses and startups. And we talked to someone who has one employee to another who has a 1,000 employees and potential global reach to get from them what it really meant emotionally to invest in their businesses. Right before my book deal came in, my debit card was declined at Popeyes. A lot of us are indoor cats that want to go outside, and once we do get outside, get stuck under a bush. That's Kelly Williams-Brown. She's a freelance writer and the author of the book and blog, Adulting. Her focus today is to really talk about her own mistakes and hard-won victories as a writer. And she told us about how the romantic notions of becoming a freelance writer were actually the exact stumbling blocks to being creative. Growing up, I really had the idea that you wake up in the morning, you put on your suit, and you eat breakfast, and then you go to the office and you work there steadily through the day, and it's very structured. It really took a while before I had the confidence to totally step away from the confines of a nine-to-five. There is this romantic idea of what it means to be a full-time, on-your-own writer. 
a lot of sort of solitary thinking time at cafes, scribbling away, and the luxury of just pursuing whatever stories are most important to you and most resonant. And yet, when it was time to do it, I didn't like it. I would wake up in the morning and I would think, okay, I'm going to go do something productive. Now is the moment when I do something definitely productive. And then I think, well, wouldn't you do a better job of being productive if you rewatch that episode of Mad Men? Then I look at the clock and I think, okay, you're going to do something right after lunch, so on and so forth. And, And what happened is I just didn't get anything done. And then I would feel terrible about myself for not getting anything done. You know, I'm not saying that I fell into a depression directly because I'm a procrastinator, but being in a situation where I don't have those reasons to get out of bed, to talk to people, to be productive, to be doing something that makes me feel good about myself, that makes conditions ripe for me to become depressed. How does your physical space change the way that you work or the quality of work you do? My theory with working from home is always to find a place that will suit my needs for that day in which I am slightly uncomfortable. I don't want an environment where I am as comfortable as I would be in my home. I'm so lucky in that a friend of mine runs a great agency. They do all kinds of stuff and they have an office right downtown. And when I was trying to figure out where I would write this new book, you know, I called her up and I just asked, you know, I knew they had a little bit of extra space. And I said, yeah, I know this is a little bit unusual, but is there any way you'd be willing to trade me the ability to drop in, sit down and work for like an hour a week of copywriting? And she was totally into it. And was that a very easy balance to strike for you? being part of an organization, and then being your own boss. Was that an easy relationship, that rhythm? I want to make it really clear. I did not wake up with all this figured out. You know, this was, there was a lot of trial and error. And beyond that, a lot of just accepting how I work and under what conditions I work best. I really wish I was the person who did not need external deadlines, did not need external expectations, but I'm not. And at a certain point, you just have to say, okay, well, that is how my brain works. My brain does some wonderful things and my brain does some quirky and frustrating things. And this is quirky and frustrating. So what can I do to minimize that and figure out how to do what I need to do? So once I realized, oh, you work better in an office. You really like to have coworkers. You want to come into a place that is your place of work, even if maybe technically they're not the one employing you. Once I realized that that's what I needed, then it it became a much simpler thing. It was, okay, you still work for yourself, but let's see what kind of office situation you can go find yourself in. I love a cubicle. Can't help it. You get to pin pictures up you like. You get to say hello to people. You get to discuss, you know, whatever high-quality drama was on Sunday night. And I like going to work. So figuring out a way to do that for myself not only made me happy, but made me better. What advice would you give to people that are trying to really get a hold of their own self-doubt? The advice I would give to someone is look at what works for you and what doesn't. Don't do what seems from the outside like the most correct, the most perfect, the most idealized version of this. 
go with the situations that you know you can do well in. Because anytime you're striking out on your own, there's so much uncertainty. There's so much fear. It's a totally new thing. And you have fears about money. You have fears about success. You have fears about yourself and your abilities. You have fears about how other people might receive this well or receive it very poorly. So for me, at least, taking concrete steps on the things that I can control in that situation is the best way to be able to let go of some of that other stuff and be able to say, okay, I I can't control the future. I can't control the outcome of this, but I can set myself up to be doing the best work that I am capable of doing. Do you have a financial system in place to handle the ups and downs of being a freelance writer? I've been pretty conservative when I do have money coming in, just putting it away, putting it in savings. I'm not a total financial idiot. I have embraced the idea of a budget, uh, and it was my mentor, Nancy, who told me, and I, I put this in the book Adulting, like, the phenomenal thing about a budget is that once you know exactly what your budget is, you can spend that money guilt-free. There's many layers of satisfaction and happiness, right? There's feeling comfortable in the day-to-day, which is how I feel when I'm in an office. And then there's sort of the longer-term satisfaction of, I have made something that I'm proud of, or I did a good job. Even if it's just today, I, I did my best job today. Coming to a place of acceptance of my own procrastination, my own ADD tendencies, my own desire to be in a structured environment, And working with that rather than trying to wish myself into being a different person, it's a great relief. It's a huge relief. I think something that Kelly said that really struck with me is that you want to build a structure that works for you and your personality and your faults and your personal demons. And you don't want to be swayed by romanticized notions of what your career should be. Jaime Toure is the chef and owner of Ostrich Farm, a booming new restaurant in Echo Park, Los Angeles. From San Francisco's worst busboy to a recovering addict and a culinary mentor, Jaime's growth as a chef, a father, and accidental adult informs what makes him Ostrich Farm's heart and head. Every day is a test of, do you want to do it? Do you want to do it today? And if you do, then do it and do it like it's meant to be done. There's no faking it. I wouldn't be happy if, if we were faking it. You know, Every day is like, I can't go on, I must go on. Because you talk a lot about the rhythm of, of the kitchen, right? And this is the rhythm of a business. This business, you know, is an expression of this vision that I had. A busy Saturday night has a feel and a sound. It's intoxicating. You know, it's intoxicating. You want to be a part of that. You know, I want it to be the truest expression of that vision. I had the good fortune of working in a restaurant and there was a very charismatic and dynamic and talented chef and I would just watch him work and said, listen, I want to do what you do. Chef life, as I understood it then, and as I understand it now too, it's work. It is work. It's long, grueling hours. It's emotional work. And I got further and further away from this guy who was making stocks and cleaning calamari and happy to be there contributing this little piece to this larger machine And I morphed from that to this other thing, what I thought a chef should be. In that process, I was drinking more, and I was doing drugs more. And over the course of years, this persona that had sort of sharpened my edge eventually dulled it. 
I was drunk. I was a drug addict. I was angry. My relationship was suffering. I, you know, I was just getting more and more isolated. It wasn't really me. And seven, eight years into working at Kitchens, I thought, I got to get out of this business. I got to get out of San Francisco. I'm not happy. All the optimism that I had had when I started working at Kitchens about being a part of culture and being a part of a team, everything had gotten away from me. When was the moment then you realized, okay, I'm getting back into this with a completely different perspective? You know, I got sober and I spent a year in treatment. And it was just a reprieve. I was just safe. When I came out of there, I still didn't want to go back to kitchens. I went to the paralegal program at UCLA, got a paralegal certificate, went and got a job downtown. I just couldn't find the rhythm. I would spend all my time looking for chef jobs. And I was like, God, I'm really unfit. You know, I've, I managed to put my life back together. I'm not on the verge of dying anymore, but I have no place in this world. That's when I, you know, thought, let's reconsider food, okay? I was contacted by this woman's homeless shelter in uh, Echo Park area. I had put my resume online, and they were opening a cafe and a vocational training center. They needed somebody to train them in the culinary arts in the hopes that they could get living wage employment. And I thought, this is amazing, right? This is like a perfect combination of what I'm looking for. And so I was inspired again. You know, I, I had some idealism that I had when I first started out in the kitchen. From the time that I worked my first busboy shift on a Saturday night, through the ups and downs of my life, I had always wanted my own place. I had this belief that I could do this thing well. Going through that process, at first, I had no idea how much money we needed. I didn't have a space, really, at that time. All I had was an idea that I wanted to open a restaurant. So I found a large governmental agency that's set up to assist small entrepreneurs. I said, I want to open a restaurant, and I want to open it in Echo Park, and it's going to be a small little place. I had no credit. I had no reputation that I could rely upon. We said, okay, we need $300,000 to make this happen. We heard a lot of no's. We heard a lot of, like, this is not going to work. We can't do this. You don't have enough money. You don't have enough experience. I pushed back on everything, everything. I mean, it took us about six months to finally secure the loan. And that was six months of me calling every day and talking to somebody over there and saying, what do you need today? What do you need today? They came back to me and said, well, we don't really want to do restaurants because it's a very risky business, but we'll consider your application. We need to see collateral. Then we're going to put it in front of our committee. So the hoop that we had to jump through became so small, it was like the eye of a needle that we had to pass an elephant through. I was a true believer in, in the restaurant at that point. We signed a home away. That was a moment where we had to pause and say, is this really what we want to do? Was it enough? It was all we could get, you know, and so it had to be sort of enough. But, you know, we dipped into 401k, we took other small loans, we maxed out our credit cards. It still wasn't enough. You know, we had to do everything we could to get to day one. That's the pressure we were feeling was we just went all in. Looking back, what's something that you would want someone to know before entering either into this business or any business where you want to be your own boss? Being a chef, I mean, it's right there. It's in front of you, right? And you know pretty much immediately, like, this is going well. This dish looks good. It's on time. It's all going out together. The business, I mean, the cycle is it's a much longer cycle of things. And it's built day by day. And so you need time and perspective and expertise to be able to appreciate what's happening day by day. 
payroll tax and sales tax and the mechanics of a business, all the money stuff. That stuff is real. When we first dealt, we, we pretended it wasn't. We thought we could operate ourselves into proper best practices, and you can't. When you have nothing in the bank, and you've got to pay your employees, and you've got to pay your vendors, the calculus that's required to like make sure that your account doesn't get go into negative and that someone still doesn't bounce their check. It was a lot of borrowing from Peter to pay Paul and then you know asking Paul to hold his check on Monday. It, it was just that over and over and over again until we acknowledged that we had to establish best practices first. We'd have a busy Thursday night and think, tonight was great. You know, tonight was great. This is what we hoped for. This is the dream. But that's just anecdotal, right? That has no real relevance on the long-term success or failure of a business. We were not going to be a business until we got somebody to acknowledge that there are very real obligations with money. And we had no idea. We thought if it's great and it's open and we're busy, then we'll be able to address these things. If you're busy, it becomes more complicated because you have less time to tend to those matters. And you start owing more and more money to the state, to the federal government, to your employees, to your vendors. You know, all these things get very, very complicated very, very quickly. I can't be the chef. I have to remove myself from that process a bit. I have to like sit in meetings and I have to talk about these longer arcs, these long-term goals that we're trying to sort of build towards. And so I really do use that time that I had with the women in the village kitchen as a sort of touchstone, as an emotional touchstone. I guess I needed those experiences to just fail and get knocked down, to, to appreciate the significance of where I'm at now. If it weren't for the struggle, if it had come easy, I think I would take for granted the amazing work that we're doing right now. We would be a different restaurant. I would be a different person. I think with Jaime, it's very clear. For him, the medium is the message. And he's learned that the relationships you build in the course of doing your business are the real bottom line. What if you could build a company around emotional intelligence? Dan Terran has done just that. In an industry that tends to undervalue its lowest paid workers, Dan's startup, managed by Q, services corporate maintenance and cleaning, IT, and other needs. What's extraordinary, though, is that the company hires and promotes employees based primarily on their capacity for two qualities, optimism and empathy. Dan and his team have translated those qualities into data that serves growth while keeping them true to their vision. We have a lens through which we look at every decision, which is, is this going to make the world work better or worse? And usually, like, when you just look at it that way, there's a binary answer. We've taken a really employee-first approach to how we've built the company. If we wanted to deliver the best service, we needed to attract the best people. And in order to do that, we needed to be the best employer for our workforce. There's some pretty concrete things that we're talking about. You know, for our field workforce, we have obviously competitive above market wages, you know, well above the minimum wage in every market that we're in. Uh, full medical benefits, 100% covered by the company. So the same health benefits that our executives and engineers have are also extended to our cleaners and handymen. We like talk about ourselves as ecosystem thinkers. And so, like, while yes, you know, cutting a bonus program could have 
great results for the margin if you kind of walk that through and think like, well, what would that bonus have gone to? And if that bonus would have gone to paying for daycare for a kid uh, while their mom was at work and now she needs to call out sick to go take care of them and then the customer is unhappy because you have uh, someone who's not their regular service provider coming in and all of a sudden you're losing customers, like it doesn't seem like a the smartest business move. People always ask me if it is true that all of our field operators, in addition to our team in the office, has our cell phone number, uh, and the answer is largely yes. My girlfriend doesn't love it. Uh, (laughs) I field a lot of phone calls. It's a safety valve. Nobody ever wants to call the CEO, but if they feel like they need to, they should know that's an option. Someone once told me that as a, a founder CEO, every six months, if you haven't gotten fired, you've gotten a promotion. Like, every six months, it's a totally different job. You know, I've gone from, like, literally spending seven days a week cleaning offices myself to, you know, managing a world-class executive team, world-class engineering team. And those are, like, pretty different skill sets. Certainly, I have uh, moments of self-doubt, but I guess, like, the best way I've been able to combat it is uh, don't look down. surround myself with really smart people, and then lean on them when I need to. When you were pitching to investors, what were those pitches like? Meaning, you know, how were they perceived? What were some of the obstacles? How did you kind of address some of that? It was really important for me to find investors and advisors that have a really deep alignment with who I am and what I'm trying to do. Raising money is definitely a vulnerable act, especially at the earlier stages. Maybe the first or second pitch, like, ever did, had a partner at a firm tell me that his intern was more qualified to be CEO than I was. (laughs) And uh, that stung a little bit. (laughs) The key takeaway from anyone like raising capital is only one person has to say yes, (laughs) and you will likely pitch dozens, if not hundreds of people in your career. People will say no, and people should say no, because, you know, not everything is for everyone. People felt like they were giving me the answers, you know, couldn't you just use contractors and pay them less? And I think there are things that, as an entrepreneur and as like a human, you have to know, you know, where you stand. You can sort of read people as they try and invite you to bend to make it work for them, and you make it clear that you're not going to bend. The thing about pitching investors is, sure, like they're choosing you, but you're also choosing them. If they don't get why what I'm doing is like unique and special and valuable and necessary, I'm not going to sit here and beg them for some capital. Because when you're an entrepreneur, you spend a large chunk of your life, you know, if you're lucky, making someone else a lot of money. So (laughs) you want to make sure that you like these people and you want to spend time with them and you want them to share in your successes and you want to lean on them when times are tough. That's not going to be the case if you're jumping at the first person who's willing to write a check. Specifically, optimism and empathy. I think this is such a a fascinating and wonderful part of the difference between working at Q versus other companies. You know, when we talk about like optimism is one of our core values, we think about it as an attitude that embraces opportunity. It's not like a traditional kind of like corporate value, and it might sound a little odd, but my view is basically this. Building any venture is hard, and not only hard, but improbable. And any company is more likely to fail than to go from zero to 10 million in revenue and more likely to fail than to go from 10 million to 100 million in revenue. And so every sort of step along the way, it doesn't really get any easier and it, it doesn't get any less unlikely. You know, it's basically when you're doing an unlikely or improbable thing, you really want to avoid as much friction as possible. And so having a good attitude may not make your company a success, but having a shitty attitude may contribute to the failure of your business. 
Uh, and so when we think about like what does it mean to be optimistic, it doesn't mean to be like chipper all the time. People who know me know that that is not the case. But it means to believe deeply that tomorrow will be better than today. And that like if you continue to believe that, you can see it happen. You know, this can really work. Like we can actually invest meaningfully in our workforce and we'll see the benefit to the bottom line by reduced cost to acquire new customers, reduced cost to acquire on the supply side, reduced training costs, reduced employee turnover. You know, it's much cheaper to keep a good employee uh, than to have to go and find a new one because they weren't being taken care of. We see our customer value grow over time because they love and trust our workforce. So all the stuff that investors salivate over, we've been able to produce and it's literally only because we kind of had uh, the conviction at the beginning to make these investments in the workforce, at least that's where I attribute a lot of that success. How do you keep Q, who who you guys are, and how do you keep that core value system running within the company once it gets so big? We joke that like a company that writes together fights together. Like we encourage people to write essays. And this guy Percy, who started as a cleaner who was mopping floors overnight, and he got promoted into a different role and then a different role. And over the course of the last probably eighteen months, he's grown from a cleaner into this career at Q. And he tells this beautiful story of before he came to Q, he was working multiple jobs and he saw the posting and he's a guy who showed up and came to Q to create a career and realized it would take time and knew that it would mean mopping floors and like that optimism to push through the less glamorous stuff is why he's been able to be successful in the company and that applies to software engineers to executives uh, nobody is exempt from kind of this uh, core value there's a great quote from Tim O'Reilly. Uh, he says, a business is just a context for doing interesting things. The one thing I think would be really amazing and that I'm you know, optimistic about is we have this stock option program for our operators um, where we're giving up to 5% of the company away. And if we you know, reach certain milestones and have you know, potentially a big public exit and see the success that we want to see, you know, it could be the largest redistribution of wealth in like the history of the world. Uh, it's possible. Uh, it's highly unlikely, but it's possible. That could really, I think, short circuit the cycle of poverty in a lot of these communities that we work in. Uh, and that for me is like, I'm not saying I'd be ready to hang up my cleats, but that would be like a really exciting milestone. For Dan, obviously what's admirable is his focus on being the best employer. You know, that he has his grand purpose, a global purpose as an ecosystem thinker. To think that this is more than just about yourself or your own business or your own ego, but how it affects all these other people that work for you and work around you. In a way, he's almost left no room for self-doubt from the very beginning because his conviction is such an integral part of his business. And I think that's how he approached his investors, that he found people that understood that to be a part of his business, that they had to be a part of his value system. Financial survival is crucial, but our values and our spirit have to be fed with less material means. For Kristen and Shin Okuda, making rent is on par with the importance of having a space for, quote, creative spirituality, to put it in their words. Kristen is a curator and clothing designer, and Shin designs and builds furniture. They found each other by stars aligning, and now their shared life, including a new baby and a collection of creative collaborators, is based on their mutual pursuit of artistic fulfillment and exploration. They've built their businesses to keep love and art front and center. I was taking an Ikebana class on the way back. 
a tire flew off of a semi and sort of this apocalyptic video game moment and it hit my car and I was sort of at this moment, a moment where you could not be here anymore. This opportunity to change all of these components in my life that I had wanted to change, but there wasn't really anything pushing me over that edge. So I really decided that I wanted to embark on making a space that could be a space for my work and for a conversation around that work. Talk to me about what was the trajectory? I was working for an art listing website and I was uh, designing clothes as this sort of smaller project on the side, but hadn't committed to investing money in it in a way that would sort of liberate me from a part-time job or to have like three jobs. And so the car accident allowed me to make this wish list of the things I want to accomplish. And this is the chance. It's all or nothing. I wanted to avoid getting another job that I, I really thought would be a stop sign to, you know, fulfilling this idea that I had that would begin everything. I wanted to slough away all of the things that didn't appeal to me. The car accident eliminated this really unfulfilling relationship I was in. And so I had all these qualities that I thought were really important. And I had made this list and he was at the door 30 minutes later. And I was sort of shocked. <laughs> she had a lot of books, interesting books at the store. So I wanted to show her some Japanese art books. I looked at it as a sign. He's been a part ever since. He still had freelance work that he was doing, but we immediately started collaborating on projects and doing sort of like little openings together. And that was the impetus for furniture. I remember the first event I participated was a book reading. So I made a desk and the store that she can put uh, the books. That was the first piece. We're yeah. both very participatory in each other's work and idea process. And I mean, I definitely couldn't do it without him now. Yeah, I feel the same way. Was that a leap of faith or did that feel like this is the right time and I'm moving into this? There was just a lot of trust. But when you have that feeling with someone, it, there's you don't need to question it. I think it's, you really have to know the person to be in business with the person. I think that's why sometimes sisters that are in business together or, you know, brothers or sisters, it works because they know each other so well. If I don't believe in what she does, I don't think it will work. I believe in what she does. So if there is a hard time, I still want to support her. I want her to do what she wants to do and what she believes in. You start to understand each other's mm. sort of aesthetic language. And so when something seems really far out from that, that I don't know, I think we do a good job of guiding each other. I do what Freedoms, I want to do yeah. and she does what she wants to do. And then there's a good support system. Yeah. And where does money fall into this value system? I think we both have the same approach to money. Just maintain having all of our, our budget met and grow a bigger savings and to consider like all of the things that a child can cost you. <laughs> I think we both are responsible with money in the same way. And so I think if one of us were more frivolous that um, there would be problems, but I think it's a very shared goal with what we monetarily want to achieve too. I just created like a life budget and then a business budget, you know, just of all the expenses that you would have. I looked at how much savings I had and how much I had from my accident and 
and did it on a year. And then that also helped me figure out how much per month I need. I mean, my dad would be like, you need to sell 10 dresses in five days or, you know, you, you can break it down even to that. But I, I'm a little bit more fluid and feeling. So I tried to be very realistic. I don't want to ever have to ask someone to pay my phone bill for me. Our overhead is still manageable. It's still small enough that if this month is not great, we can go for the next month by doing what we do. When you have your own business, the expectation of presenting this seriously, it's not just for play. If you're making pieces for a show or for an opening, or people are going to come, so you need to really make the best work that you can and make it interesting and find some relevance. What is it that you did want and did not want this business to be? Um, I did not want to have a very formal retail structure. I had worked so many other jobs to get to this point to figure out the things that didn't appeal to me. When we talk about really trying to create a different model for making things in a way that is an enjoyable experience and also uh, one that you can make a living on. I think that that really is just like a constant opportunity to be innovative. I really enjoy that process. What I do is meet client every time and then most of the time I have to design and fabricate unique pieces. I'm still learning by doing what I do now. We just make what we want to make we don't really make what we don't want to make just to appease like an audience or to think that that would make us successful in some way. Trying to work in giving people an experience through these things versus just selling units. You know, doing a piece on color therapy through clothing or different seating concepts and offer people the chance to actually not go to a rack and just pull it off, try it on and buy it, but to come in and experience our world. Again, not a business plan that you would maybe learn in business school, but that's what feels really natural to me at this point. People have said that they enjoy what we make, is that it makes them feel a certain way. You don't have like a million great ideas. You probably have 10. And so work with those 10 great ideas as hard and as long as you need to, to make it work. In a job, there's a ladder. There's another title and another ring, uh, another paycheck. There's always somewhere else to go that's kind of clearly laid out. But when you're out on your own, you don't have that ladder. Things that we call mistakes along the way, that's all part of the job description of being your own boss. Even though our guests have very different backgrounds, very different businesses and approaches to business, there are clear similarities. Staying true to your vision, that yes, you will need to check in with it over time, and it even may change a bit, but that you have to have people around you that keep you accountable to what your original vision was. You need to build a structure that works for you. And finally, that the medium is the message, meaning that the relationships you build in the course of doing your business are really the bottom line. I think there has to be a commitment to knowing yourself 
to a certain degree, that you have to get to know what your demons are. You have to get to know where you really succeed in, and, and what that looks like and create that environment and set yourself up for success in that way. There has to be a real kind of deep dive into your own personality. That'll keep you from making a lot of mistakes along the way. What I realized after years of doing this, my measures of success being out on my own, they have to be how I define them. That's scary, but that's also kind of the best part. Well, that's it for this episode of Open Account. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to catch up on past episodes and stay tuned for a lot more. Umqua Bank's vision to build a healthier relationship with money for everyone, no matter how much or how little you have, it inspires them to have these kinds of conversations every day. Learn more about their team and their approach to community banking at madetogrow.com. 